There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... A.K. Benjamin on a story of unravelling minds in his book, Let Me Not Be Mad. A.K. Benjamin is a clinical neuropsychologist specialising in diagnostics and acute rehab. Previously, he was a screenwriter, spent two years as a contemplative monk, and has worked at a number of NGOs with homeless addicts, with gangs, and with children with acquired and congenital neurological conditions. He no longer lives in the UK, and also A.K. Benjamin is not his real name. And today we're going to be talking about his book, Let Me Not Be Mad, A Story of Unravelling Minds. So, person, go by the name of A.K. Benjamin. Welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. Um, what's the idea behind the book? Well, I suppose there wasn't one single idea. First of all, I was... Uh, struck by how inauthentic case studies are often when they're written up. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of invisible and unconscious conventions that seem to that seem to control the, the way that they're written, and yet they they purport to want to describe something that's actually going on in the room between a clinician and the patient. And just from my own experience, when, whenever I'm I'm in the room and there's a patient there, it's always a lot more chaotic and messy than the case studies that I would read about. So there was, there was some attempt to capture some of that mess. That was part of it. And then along with that, there was also a wish to use that starting place of case studies and engage uh, the reader in a particular set of conventions and then start to dissolve those conventions and uh, use, that, use a contract, which is a, not unlike the contract between a doctor and a patient, to start uh, smuggling in different kinds of treatment and different kinds of medicine, uh, different kinds of narcotics into, the, into that. And then the third thing, I think, was I just needed, as a, as a sometime patient, to get something off my chest with me forcing myself to be doctor to my own patient. So the, the, they, were, they were three of the impetuses behind it. So, as you said, I mean, the book sort of, appears to be a medical practitioner's memoir of case studies of patients and we've had plenty of that sort of thing on little Atoms before but it goes off in a in a very different direction which I don't really want to go too far into because a, a lot of the pleasures of the book are discovering that for yourself and as you've just mentioned also it's you know it's a memoir of your own treatment for illness as well um, and so, again, I mean, you've just sort of touched on this, but a lot of those medical memoirs will obviously be talking about patients and there is patient and doctor confidentiality. Um, and there's a number of levels which you play with that here. First of all, obviously, you've, you know, changed the names, changed the events and times, slightly fictionalised in some ways or mixed up the patients. But also, first of all, there's a pseudonym on the front of the book. 
Um, and also, as you've said, you know, there's, again, what we can't really talk about, but what happens with your own treatment as it's threaded through the book. So let's talk about some of those ideas about writing about, you know, there's the trust between a patient and a doctor. When the patient is seeing the doctor, they're not expecting to end up in a, you know, a best-selling medical memoir years down the line. And that that was something that I agonised about. And even though, uh, as you say, there's no single patient that's represented in the book, it's an amalgam of uh, certain clinical encounters and certain things that were fabricated to look like clinical encounters. That said, there there felt something uh, transgressive just about entering that territory, and that was the that was one of the two main factors that made me want to change the name. The other factor being that because the book becomes deeply personal, there was a wish to protect uh, family members and friends from uh, you know some of the material that, that that I used, you know. So, and well, let's talk about how you, how did you end up in the field in the first place? So, I ended up being a monk on the west coast of America for two or three years. And uh, something that I'd, which in itself is a story, but I'd signed up very knowingly and thought about it carefully. And it meant relinquishing a number of things. And for a couple of years, the, the life of a, of a contemplative monk, so a life of, of a lot of solitude and silence, was a very restorative uh, and beautiful in lots of ways. But I started to get uh, itchy feet. And the, the monks, being, being sort of liberal and psychologically minded, uh, allowed me to engage in more active pursuits. So they would give me little secondments from the monastery, and I found myself going into Central America and doing some work there, and then up into Northern California and doing some work there with different populations. I had had some experience of uh, running an NGO with homelessness and addiction and uh, psychiatric problems, so as I, as, I, as I started to do this and combine it with being a monk, it became clear to me that I lacked uh, certain professional qualifications. So I went, I went to see a very wise lady, uh, and we, she was in her early 80s, and she had trained in psychiatry when she was in her 60s, having had a number of different careers. And she was very desperate about the state of psychiatry. And like me, she'd, her, her, her initial... Uh, interest had been in literature. My, my first degrees were in literature and philosophy, and she she sort of petitioned me to make use of make use of my background and to train in the field of mental health, but to bring a different kind of anthropology and a different series of interests to the to the practice of psychology or psychiatry. So something that was broader than a narrowly medical anthropology. So I basically took her at her word and uh, decided to leave the monastery after a couple of years and began a 12-year training in clinical neuropsychology. Now, a lot of medicine, even today, is, as you describe your field in the book, often more art than science. And anything to do with the brain and the mind is, you know, probably even more so. What are some of the, even today with, you know, the, the neuroimaging that we have, you know, the great advances, it's still, you know, a lot of times misdiagnoses happen and things and you know it's it's still you know not 100 percent. what are some of the issues particularly around this field well if you take uh imaging as a starting point and this this is something that we go into a little bit in the book that especially in the early stages of neurological conditions neurological conditions uh scans can be very ambiguous and depend upon corroborating the scans with symptoms but then the symptoms for Various conditions overlap, and so 
reliability and validity for diagnosis using scans in the early stages of neurology can be fraught. That's neurology. In psychiatry, there is almost no valid and reliable markers for psychiatric conditions. The attempts, which is a sort of uh, has got a, a tradition to make psychiatry a biological medicine and find underpinnings for the diagnoses that we, we're all familiar with in terms of neuroanatomical markers, has not proved very, very successful at all. So, I mean, that leads to the question, is, is the problem then with the markers themselves or is it with the uh, quality of the imaging and the way that imaging itself is a sort of a series of displacements, a kind of platonic cave of echoes? And I think most people would say, well, the imaging gets better and stronger but the reliability of the diagnoses does not improve when it comes to identifying psychiatric diagnoses. So that's some of the fraughtness around those areas. And what about the sort of the history of the field itself? In that, you know, you mentioned in the book the idea of like measuring schools in the past. I see. Yeah. So, so neuropsychology itself is is relatively new. Uh, there've been attempts to measure things like intelligence for at least a hundred years, and of course. Even when they are declared as uh, scientific, they historically have been informed by all sorts of different ideological slants. Like, like in the in the 19th century, in particular, there was an attempt to uh, prove that Caucasians were more intelligent uh, than than other races, and all sorts of um, natty and elaborate ways were sought to reinforce this by measuring the skulls in different ways uh, to, support the, to, to support the existing prejudice. Uh, of course, that didn't uh, pan out to be the case, although there, even now there exists some, some neuroscientific pockets that uh, I think Sam Harris is, is still interested, for example, in uh, neuroanatomical markers of race and ideology. You also talk in the book about you know, how, how suggestible people are and how easy it is for the doctor, there's experiments that you talk about where how easy it is for, for a clinician to make a patient believe they're experiencing things that they're not necessarily. Yeah, I think that's fascinating territory and it's really under-researched, the whole notion of suggestibility, but also what is implied about suggestibility. Uh, and there seems to be a, an a priori thing which suggests that we're suggestible because we don't really know what we're on about in the first place that when we when I tell you the most intimate things about myself I've not really thought them through uh, so as soon as they're out there uh, they're so, in somehow detached from me and therefore manipulable by you particularly if there's a power gradient between you and me as there is in a doctor and a patient thing so you can take something that I didn't say tell me that I said it for example uh, you can say, oh, you look a bit anxious. I didn't know that I was anxious, but I look anxious. And then you can start to help me elaborate this non-existent anxiety by asking me, oh, have I been as anxious as this before? And yes, by God, I have been as, as anxious as this before. In fact, I'm going to take myself now through my memory back to that time and my heart rate will start to increase. And you can then start to tell me, uh, you, together we can draw a little story about my history of anxiety and uh, and, and sooner or later, I may or may not have to uh, run out of the room screaming. And so, I mean, again, if I come to see you and say, you know, I've, I think I've broken my leg, it's like quite easy enough to diagnose whether or not I've broken my leg or not. Let's talk about what happens if I come to your clinic and say, you know, I've started losing my memory slightly. I've started, you know, misnaming things, easy and obvious things or forgetting obvious names. Where do we go from there? Well... First of all, we'll chat about it for uh, half an hour or so, um, and I will 
use a sort of basically my clinical intuition, knowing that first of all, everyone thinks their memory's going anyway. Secondly, everyone's memory is going after the age of about twenty-eight, but people people tend not to notice it substantively until you know until say the late thirties when they're having to write things down. So there's so normal age in memory deterioration. What we're looking for is something over and above uh, normal deterioration, and there are so, there are types of hallmark signs for that, but then they're refracted through what sort of personality you have. So are you the sort of person that uh, notices those things? And then if you do notice them, are you worrying about them? So there's a sort of dance between, uh, you know, going back to that notion that it's not uh, all science, there's there's artfulness involved. Then I'm trying to get a sense of who you are, what your, uh, what the hard signs of your claimed memory loss are. Have other people noticed it? Usually we'd want a collateral informant like a, a, a spouse or a, a or a, a son or a daughter in there to to give a, a a third perspective. Although those perspectives themselves may well be loaded by and framed by the relationship between the informant and the person that's in front of you, so they themselves aren't hard evidence. So, but anyway, once we've sort of drawn a sketch of what your memory looks like, I'll start to use then instruments, well well validated tests for different forms of memory performance and I'll get you to perform and I'll I'll measure that performance against what I would expect someone of your ilk uh, using cr- relatively crass demographic coordinates to uh, compare your performance with other people like you and in that way I'll have some vague idea of whether your me- mem- especially if it's early in the stage of, an, of a neurodegenerative process I'll have some idea of whether your memory is changing and if it is and then that's correlated with other neurological markers, like a scan, then we may be able to get you uh, on uh, a neurodegenerative retardant quicker than if we have to wait until we find you lost in a park with your trousers around your ankles. And I mentioned earlier, you know, the danger of misdiagnosis. And indeed, early on in the, in the book, there's a chapter about a woman here called Lucy where there's a um, there's a misdiagnosis, but more specifically in that chapter, you also talk about how this happened to you too. Yeah, I did. I I had a sort of how does to describe it? I suppose a brief psychotic break that was brought on by acute stress when I was in my twenties. Acute stress, and it was it was at a time where I was uh, abusing drugs and alcohol, and I was referred to a psychiatrist. I went to see the psychiatrist and. Uh, I was in a state, I was very paranoid about the psychiatrist and we didn't click at all. Uh, and he he wrote a letter uh, on the basis of the assessment that intimated that I had a particular diagnosis of uh, borderline personality disorder, uh, which is, is a very extreme and shocking diagnosis to receive. In fact, at the time, it was in the, it was in the north of England and at the time... This particular doctor was known for, first of all, was known for that, for giving that diagnosis. And secondly, that diagnosis itself had proliferated massively because there was, uh, for, for I think broadly social and political reasons, there were a number of um, homeless people, homeless addicts on the streets, uh, on the city streets. And the conferring of this diagnosis enabled uh, people to be removed from the streets into different kind of treatment centres. And uh, so it's, it had a functionality. Anyway, I was referred on to a, to see a psychotherapist who, after about three or four uh, therapeutic sessions with me, was very dismissive about this psychiatric diagnosis 
and I worked with him. It was a very important time in my life. It was the first time I'd been in in psychotherapy, and it had a very healing effect. And yet, just that utterance of borderline personality disorder has meant that whenever things become difficult or sticky, then I have I feel the sort of ghost of it uh, knocking around. It's been difficult to fully undo its power. So if it was a misdiagnosis, it's something that still managed to shape aspects of my experience of myself uh, and of the world, even you know, even though it probably took this guy uh, not very long to, to stick it down in his assessment letter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today we're talking about Let Me Not Be Mad, a story of unravelling minds by A.K. Benjamin. And, well, we're going to stick with you. So you're you're now, you know, you're working as a clinical neuropsychologist and, you know, you're surrounded by, you know, people with illness all the time. You have a family um, and you start to get ill again. And I want to talk about how that manifested itself at this time. First of all, I, the events that I describe in the book are not the events uh, that happened to me. I started. I'm just going to detour a little bit here. I started writing uh, a journal uh, at the time that I was having difficulty at work, and then after, uh, I went on to leave work and carried on with this journal. But I got very bored with just documenting an internal states. It didn't seem to have any therapeutic benefit to me after a, after a brief while. Uh, the confessional element seemed it seemed bogus. What I started to do was start arranging uh, f- like fragments of real experience in different ways and uh, introducing things that didn't happen to me uh, and and then amalgamating them and th- and that way a sort of story grew out of them and that became the, the second half of the book was more like that. But for me as a clinician, I think if I was to formulate what was happening to me myself in a sort of semi-professional way, I'd say, well, first of all. My idea for being a clinical neuropsychologist was someone else's idea that they put into me. So it wasn't, it hadn't been, even though it was very compelling and interesting to me, it wasn't my idea. And it, I didn't actually own it very fully. I jumped through all these hoops, you know, there, there was something like four different degrees that I had to do. And ju- just by a sort of force of will, and hadn't really thought through what it was going to be like to 
work in the NHS with neurologists and neurosurgeons and how, you know, I hadn't had a regular job before before that. I'd done various different things which afforded me quite a lot of freedom and allowed me uh, to be myself in ways that I couldn't quite be. So there was, a, I suppose there was a sense at that level that I was being, I felt a bit more and more caged. Another thing that happened was, I just remember this very clearly, and this was like, the, this was the, the moment that uh, I start the book with. There was a woman in front of me and she was probably the 2,000th woman I'd ever seen uh, for, a, for an assessment. Uh, and she was about my age, and she had some pretty hideous tumours. And I'm doing my assessment, and I'm, doing, I'm writing down the normal questions, eye colour and uh, left or right-handed, and uh, just, you know, just doing a sort of general holistic assessment. And suddenly I, the scales fall from my eyes, and I start hearing her uh, suffering as though... The 1,999 people before her had all just appeared now in this woman, and the and the partition was gone. And I felt uh, incredibly moved by this woman uh, in a way I couldn't remember having felt. And rather than wanting to be an expert and uh, make some clever diagnosis, I just wanted to give her a hug. And then more than that, I wanted to take her home and look after her and. Uh, and of course, that's not something you can do. And there was this profound sense of uh, loss and frustration that came through. And it started there. And then it, it developed. I couldn't get past that feeling of uh, wanting to break the boundaries down. And of course, some of this has got nothing to do with my empathic capacities as a doctor. And has got more to do with the fact that I, I myself was struggling to keep my head above water, uh, you know, in a in a big city faced by the breakup of a relationship and being separated from children, financial insecurity, etc., etc., the stuff that everyone's everyone's navigating, but some people are more resilient than others. So that was that was the start of my unravelling. Well, of course, it would be an obvious question to say, well, what difference does being a clinical neuropsychologist make when you're being becoming ill yourself? But, of course... That's a ridiculous question because it was it was doing that job that's making you ill in the first place. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's making me ill, but 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 there was something about my um, the misalignment between me and the profession, or at least the way that the professions practiced uh, in the place that I was working. But on the other side of it, I you know I did before I was a neuropsychologist. I did a doctorate in clinical neuros in clinical psychology, so I, I did I've done quite a lot of talking therapy with people, and I know certain strategies and in the end some of those strategies have been very helpful and my instincts I think because of the training that I've received have been more towards uh, being able to look after myself well and hopefully you know friends and family well uh, as a result of the of the training I've had although that's not always the case. Well what then was it like I want to ask about being on the other side of the desk so being treated by other clinicians perhaps even colleagues? Yeah I mean there's a whole thing in uh, psychotherapy that the modality of psychotherapy itself isn't so important. It's the therapeutic alliance. And I don't know if that's true, but I certainly know what it's like to be trying to work with someone where there's a terrible disjunction between you and that other person because of a personality clash. Um, I had a very, very difficult time uh, surrendering my own sense of what should be going on 
to a therapist uh, if I don't trust them. Or, you know, for example, I'm, for want of a better word, I'm quite uh, childish, youthful, uh, playful, whimsical, and I was stuck in a room with someone that was deadly serious for three months. Now, I'm always going to feel like a like a, more of an imbecile around someone like that. But since then, I've met other therapists that don't feel the need or don't express themselves in that way, and I found it easier to get on with that type. So I think there's there is some there's something about the alchemy at the level of personality between you and the other person. And but you've also just because I know something, I've got to have faith in their expertise. You know. That can be very hard once you've been uh, an expert yourself. I mean, in some respects, you also know that often that expertise is based on quite shaky foundations. Shaky foundations, yeah. <laughs> you've got to sort of you've you've got to give yourself a sort of well, for a bit of a head injury in order to buy into uh, the expertise of people in the first place. You've got to undergo a kind of amnesia, which is a form of faith, in order to really uh, to start. Trusting, especially if you're working a little psychodynamically with someone, where the relationship is crucial to to the process of relearning how to regulate difficult emotions and experiences. What happened next? How do you, how do you get back to, to sort so, of where you are now uh, from for, there? Yeah, for me, for me, it was a, a, a fairly radical <laughs> intervention about changing my job, changing my uh, country, finding a therapist that I got on really well with, and then just allowing. It, it be, by creating some space, by creating an entirely different environment, just allowing life, allowing life then to uh, teach me certain lessons that I'd just been utterly unable uh, to receive, either unable or just too contracted because of because of the pressures of uh, of working and living in the way I had been. Uh, so there was no there was no single uh, magical bullet. I certainly benefited from meditation practice that's one thing that even though even though i find it very difficult dispositionally to sit still you know for more than five minutes a kind of i guess it's been four or five years now of um daily meditation that's that seems to be one thing that uh, has definitely helped move things on but there have been many other things as well and some of them that don't look at all like formal interventions you know just like for example um playing cricket again or um I don't know, becoming a bit more vegetarian. A number of small things like that. Um, and just one more thing then. I just want to talk about the the process of writing the book and and I guess what the point of it is. Who do you think, who do you want to read this book? I think I've mentioned a bit about the process already, just that, that you know, it had gone from journaling to, to a different kind of imaginative enterprise. And I think the most exciting thing for me as a reader these days tends to be reading non-fiction where the writer uses the contract of non-fiction to start doing imaginative sleights of hand in order not to con but to try and expand our notion of reality and that was that for me was like the the most that was the most important thing in uh, that I, that I could use something that had the spine of truth in it and use the read, a sense of the reader's expectations of that to start uh, removing certainties in different ways uh, and with the hope that the effect of that, the cumulative effect of that would be to give a more urgent rendition of what I was, of the reality I was trying to convey in the first place. So I, I, I suppose what sort of reader? Well, a reader that would be interested in that as a process, a reader that, a, a reader that feels themselves to be mad, a reader that doesn't trust the doctors but uh, also loves the medical profession uh, for what they do, 
yeah, so someone who li- who li- who likes things intense, which is most people when it comes to uh, reading experiences. So we've been talking about "Let Me Not Be Mad," a story of unraveling minds by A.K. Benjamin. And thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.